welcome to LifeSide Beat. My name is Jacqueline Cowis, and I am the host of today's episode. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with Leo Grady. Leo has over 18 years of experience leading development and commercialization of advanced machine learning, AI, computer vision, and digital health technologies that have made a huge impact on healthcare. After completing his PhD from Boston University in cognitive and neural systems, Leo joined Siemens Healthcare for over a decade in various technical and leadership roles. After Siemens Healthcare, Leo jumped into the startup world as Senior Vice President of Engineering of HeartFlow. HeartFlow is a coronary diagnostic and treatment planning software. After HeartFlow, Leo joined a CEO Page AI, a digital pathology AI solution that was the first to get FDA approval. Leo has over 300 patents worldwide and is internationally recognized as a technology leader for AI for healthcare. He is now working on his own new stealth venture that we are really excited to learn more about. So please join me in welcoming Leo to LifeSide Beat. Leo, welcome to LifeSide Beat. Thank you for having me, Jacqueline. Excited to be here. Yeah, excited to chat today. I wanted to kick off, you know, you've been instrumental in healthcare and AI throughout your career for several years now. But before getting into that, we'd love to learn about where you grew up and how your early life shaped your career. Sure. So I grew up in the suburbs of Albany, New York. My father was a virologist. He worked for the New York State Health Department. In fact, he led virology for New York State Health Department for many years. And from a very early age, he saw the power of computers and he started bringing home his lab computers for me to learn on these old Osbournes and and whatnot. We had an Apple II Plus uh, when I was in elementary school. This is in the 80s. And so I got into computers early on, really excited about all the opportunities there. When I went to college, though, I ended up starting with both anthropology and electrical engineering. And I was really excited about both. It didn't really seem like they connected in any way. But as I went further on, I got really into the signal processing side of electrical engineering and the software end of things. And during that whole time, I was also reading the kind of science, science fiction canon of that time, Neuromancer and Snow Crash and things that were really instrumental in, in early thoughts around AI and got excited about that, ended up going to grad school really one of the only AI programs that existed at the time. We didn't call it AI, but you know that's how I ended up going to BU and doing my PhD there. Super interesting. It seems as if the Apple 2.0 had a big impact on your technical career. Did you focus on something specifically in your PhD? Well, you know, when I, I got to my PhD, I was really just interested in the whole space. And there were people there that were working on all sorts of different things. So there were machine learning, there was auditory, robotic motion, and motor control. But the individual that I connected with the most was a guy named Eric Schwartz, who was working in vision. And he was very demanding that we really know everything, everything from, you know, the neuroscience and the biology and the chemistry, the signal processing, to partial differential equations, to quantum mechanics. It was just a really exciting time to be there. And Eric was of a belief back then that GPUs were going to be the perfect neural architecture for doing processing of images in the future. And so 
that's how I got into the image processing side and the computer vision side. And that really became the place to be in AI for the last you know, couple decades. Wow. Interesting. So you dove deep into image processing and after your PhD, you moved over to Siemens, right? And worked there for almost a decade. Is that one of the reasons yeah, that's right. you joined there because you're interested in imaging and image processing or what was that leap for you? Yeah, exactly. It was a couple of things. So Siemens, as you may know, big German scanner manufacturer, they had MRI machines, CAT scanners, really any sort of imaging equipment was made by Siemens. And the way they structured their AI group is they had a group in Princeton, New Jersey, that was really focused on AI for images uh, very, very early on. You know, when I was finishing my PhD, what I did was started looking through all the top journals in AI and computer vision and trying to find industry groups that were publishing really advanced work. And I just kept seeing so much coming out of this group at Siemens that it was really exciting for me to have an opportunity to work with these people. It seemed like this is where the action was in the industry. So that's where I went. And it all proved to be true. You know, the team there is extraordinary. We were really leading the field for medical imaging and and AI in computer vision for the whole decade I was there. And even to this day, many people that are prominent in the field came through Siemens as one in one form or another over that period of time. Yeah, it seems as if many people in that time frame joined the larger companies the Siemens Healthcare, the GE Healthcare of the world, to learn the technical foundation and how to design and develop products properly before pivoting to smaller companies or startups. And that's exactly what you did. You moved over from a large company, Siemens Healthcare, after working there for 10 years, to a smaller company in the Bay Area called HeartFlow. HeartFlow is a non-invasive way to test the coronary arteries in the heart and to visualize them for a patient to enable physicians to create a more effective treatment plan and decide if they want to intervene. So that was a big difference going from a large company like Siemens to a smaller growing company in Silicon Valley. Anything you learned from that transition or anything that helped you at Siemens become a better employee and operator at HeartFlow? Yeah, absolutely. So Siemens was and is a remarkable company. And I had the opportunity while I was there to work with all these different divisions within Siemens in cardiology and oncology, fetal medicine. There was a real exposure to healthcare and to medicine. And, and what I learned at Siemens was that it was not just the technology that was going to make an impact in healthcare. It was also being able to understand everything around the technology, the patient workflow, the user experience, how you connected into the data sources. I had a, an amazing opportunity to learn all of those things while I was at Siemens. And at some point they put me on a management track and they actually sent me to management boot camp within Siemens, which was really helpful to, to give me the skills to not only manage people effectively, but also to learn you know, all the rules and regulations around interviewing people and everything that can happen that can go wrong when you're a manager. So that was extraordinarily helpful. 
you know, at the end of the day, though, I felt that the AI technology itself was so powerful and had so much opportunity to really transform healthcare. And Siemens is fundamentally a scanner company. So they weren't selling software. The, the software was always there to support scanners. So when I had the opportunity to go to HeartFlow, where the AI was the core product, that was a really exciting opportunity. And that's, that's why I moved out to the Bay Area to join HeartFlow at the time. And you know, HeartFlow works with the imaging from the CT scanner. So in a way, it's a kind of a seamless transition. For those listening that are not familiar with coronary artery disease and how it's typically diagnosed, can you walk us through a little bit about that disease state and what typically happens in the cardiology workflow? Absolutely. So a heart attack is the leading cause of death worldwide. And a heart attack is caused when the blood vessels that feed your heart, the coronary arteries, get blocked to the point that they can't deliver enough blood into the heart. And you have parts of the heart die, and that ultimately leads to a heart attack and, and death. So before someone has a heart attack, they usually have some symptoms that blood flow is being restricted to your heart. You can have chest pain, you can have shortness of breath, you can have all of these things that we associate with pre-heart attack type symptoms. If someone is feeling these things and they go to the hospital, the question that the doctor needs to determine is, does this person have, are they close to having a heart attack? Are they headed toward a heart attack? Or is this something else? Is it indigestion? Is it some sort of other cardiac issue or whatever it is? And so there are multiple ways to do this diagnosis. But at the end of the day, if they do determine that it's a coronary artery blockage, then the question is, is this blockage severe enough that we stent the patient, put a little metal tube in there and open up the coronaries? Or do we say that this blockage is manageable with medications and lifestyle changes. And that can be very difficult to determine. The best way to determine who needs a stent and who doesn't is to take them to the cath lab where you do a coronary angiogram. And then if you see a blockage, you take a pressure wire and you measure the blood pressure before and after the blockage. And if there's a significant pressure loss across the blockage, then the person needs a stent. And it's been shown to be the best way to determine who really needs a stent, who doesn't. But it's invasive, it's painful, it's expensive. And 70 to 80% of the time, the person actually doesn't need a stent. So you do the whole thing for really for nothing. What we were doing at HeartFlow is we were providing a non-invasive version of fractional flow reserve of this pressure measurement or this pressure difference that could be used to determine who really does not need a stent and save them from this procedure. It really resonates. I've been in the cath lab many times when I was working at Medtronic, seeing many cardiology intervention procedures. And you're right. A lot of them, they do a catheterization and they find out that they don't actually need intervention. So they'll go on medical management. So being able to you know, save time in the cath lab, both the patients and the providers, having a non-invasive way can add a lot of value to the healthcare system, ultimately lowering costs and providing a better experience for the patients. Yeah. So most patients do EKG or maybe a stress test. Do you envision the next step for every patient to do a CT scan with heart flow or how would that integrate into the hospital system? Yeah, you're right. The standard of care for determining if there's a real 
cardiac problem is an EKG and a nuclear stress test. And what those tests are measuring is whether or not there is already a significant tissue loss in the heart. So if part of the heart's already died and that affects how the heart is contracting, that is something that you can pick up on an EKG. If a part of the heart has died and you are injecting a radioactive tracer into the patient and then measuring that with nuclear stress test, you can see that there's a gap in that part of the heart that's died that's not taking up the tracer. Problem with those tests is that it requires the part of the heart to already have died, right? And to die in a significant amount that you can detect it with those tests. That means that somebody has already had significant enough blood loss or a minor heart attack that they didn't quite realize. So that's further down the, the, the cardiac disease cascade and somebody who walks in who has a pressure loss who absolutely needs treatment but wants to avoid those heart attacks. The way that the chest pain guidelines were updated last year actually are moving patients toward cardiac CT rather than nuclear stress tests because you can see the coronaries in such detail. The problem with cardiac CT before heart flow is that you would see a lot of disease. People of a certain age, they start to get calcifications, they get this disease. You started to have a lot of false positives when patients were getting a cardiac CT and then they were going to the cath lab still unnecessarily. But what heart flow allowed us to do is take those cardiac CTs, determine which blockages were actually functionally significant, and only those patients for which the heart flow tests were positive would then proceed into the cath lab where they could get stented. Great. So it's, it's better diagnosis and, and more accurate potentially to, to add a level of granularity for the radiologist and also the cardiologist. So you were in charge of engineering there. How do you actually design the algorithm? So from the high level, how do you actually build this? Do you get a bunch of patient CT scans and create them as inputs for an algorithm? The, the core pillars of the heart flow technology are AI to understand, uh, to extract data out of the cardiac CT and the computational fluid dynamics and biophysical modeling that goes into computing pressure loss in the coronary. So that second part, the biophysical modeling, the Navier-Stokes equations to calculate blood flow, all of that was worked out by the founder of HeartFlow, Charlie Taylor, and the other founder, Chris Zarens during his tenure at Stanford. So at Stanford, Charlie worked on this technology for, for years, for decades, really, and pioneered this space. So that piece was there, and he had validated that you could accurately calculate blood flow and pressure loss in a coronary artery or other vessels, too. The challenge was that you, you need to measure the blockages correctly, and you need to measure the rest of the coronary tree correctly in order to get those pressure loss calculations correct. So that's where the AI part comes in because you have this coronary CTA, you know, the patient's moving or, you know, the heart's beating. Uh, you have the CTA, you have you know, reconstruction artifacts, you have calcification artifacts, and you need to measure the dimensions of these coronaries at extremely high precision. For example, the resolution on a cardiac CT is about 0.3 millimeters at the high-end CTs, 
somewhere in that order of 0.3 millimeters, a coronary vessel can be stented down to about two millimeters. But if you have a 50% blockage on a two millimeter vessel, then you only have you know, one millimeter of, of lumen that you can see on the CT. So that's only about three voxels across. So if you're off by a voxel or two in assessing the dimensions of these coronaries, you can completely get wrong the calculations and, and the determination of functional significance of these blockages. So there was an incredibly difficult AI challenge for us to be able to build that technology effectively in order to be able to get these dimensions correct. Yeah, super big impact because if it's wrong, they could treat when they don't need to and vice versa. Many health tech companies, they're trying to leverage patient data sets, getting it from a lot of different places to create solutions, algorithms. But in order to do that, you need to get the data from somewhere. And if you do that, you need to be aware of what you can and cannot do with it. So if hypothetically I wanted to start something or someone wanted to start a startup, get data sets of patient information from a surgery center, let's say, can the doctor or provider center send me that data? Or do they have to notify all the patients that they're doing that? Or as a patient, do I automatically say that my data can be shared if it's anonymous? It really depends on the agreements that the patient signs when they engage with that hospital. So depending on those agreements, the hospital may have access to use the data for other purposes, or they may not. And again, your ability to use that data is also dependent on whether you're providing a clinical service or whether you are doing research or whether you're doing product development or what. So for example, like if you go to Quest or hospital, your doctor wants you to get labs done and you go to Quest and you give them your blood sample and they use that for testing, they have access to that data and they can do other things with it in terms of, you know, everything from understanding how to optimize their operations, to get blood in faster, to process it more effectively, to understand trends, et cetera, et cetera. They can also use that data depending on what you sign. And I can't speak to Quest, it's just an example, mm-hmm. um, you know, for other purposes to help them you know, deliver better technology in the future. Yeah, I'm curious to see how these laws adapt over time, especially with the consumerism of healthcare and patients having higher expectations. I imagine a world in where patients actually want more of their data or at least part of the revenue that's generated from that. So we'll see how that shakes out in the future. Well, I just want to touch on that for one second. So I think this is a really key issue. As a society, we have two competing needs, right? One is a need for patients to own their data and preserve uh, healthcare data and maintain their privacy. And that is a really core societal need that we have. At the same time, we also have a second societal need, which is the ability to develop new technologies, right? That can actually impact and benefit patients, hospitals, doctors. So the question is always like, how do we marry those two societal needs? And I think that aggregation of anonymized data with the right security protocols, with the right consents, with all of those things, does give us the ability to do both. But those agreements need to be explicit, they need to be upfront, and the privacy and security need to be taken very seriously. 
Yeah, no, I think there's ways to achieve both. They're just navigating that process. And I suspect that as data becomes ever more important over time, there might be some things that evolve with laws or elements to that to make sure that people do it in the right way. I want to pivot a little bit because your career, you've jumped to so many things. They've all been on this theme of leveraging AI for healthcare and in this diagnostic thread. After HeartFlow, you joined Page AI as a CEO. You went from heart diagnostic solutions to transforming cancer diagnostics. So Page AI is a digital pathology solution that creates predictive tests for certain cancers, like prostate, I believe they have breast cancer as well. It's spun out of Memorial Sloan Kettering, which is a large cancer institution in New York City. Any lessons learned from leading a company that was spun out from an academic institution and how to navigate that? Well, I should start off by saying Memorial Sloan Kettering is one of the world's great cancer hospitals. And they were very, they're very far ahead in many areas of technology and, and patient care. And they've been leading the charge in many, many different ways for, for oncology and cancer care throughout their existence. One of the areas that they got ahead of the rest of the world on was in digital pathology and the opportunities with AI back five, five or more years ago, I should actually even uh, longer, they built a center at MSK with grant funding to start digitizing pathology slides and building AI applications that can help benefit the oncology diagnostic process. And so for those of your listeners who don't know, pathology is the branch of medicine where you're taking tissue out of a patient, cutting it, mounting it on a slide, staining it, and then looking at it under a microscope in order to make a diagnosis. And pathology is really core to cancer care, but it's also amazing because it's usually the final line of diagnostic accuracy and, and correctness. So if a pathologist makes a diagnosis of cancer and not cancer by looking at the tissue, that is the diagnosis for the patient. It's very hard to appeal that. Whereas in radiology, for example, if you see a lung nodule on a CT, you say, I don't, I'm not so sure. Maybe it's cancer, maybe it's not. The pathologist is the one who answers that question if they actually pull the tissue out of the patient. But there's really no place to appeal after pathology when you have these diagnoses. So MSK got ahead of the rest of the field in pathology, in AI, very early on. And the technology that they were building got to a point where they felt that it could have a greater benefit to society. I mean, MSK is a nonprofit. Their mission is really directed at improving cancer care in general, globally, not just for patients in New York City that have the opportunity to go there. And so they felt that they could better serve their mission by having the technology be more broadly applicable and more broadly useful. And it would benefit both MSK patients and patients more broadly. So that was really the origin of the company coming out. It was before I joined, I was not a founder. I was recruited in after the company spun out as their CEO to lead the company. Great, so you moved from Silicon Valley to New York City, went from leading an engineering team to now being a CEO of a new company when it had about, I believe 15 people or so, and you grew it and were the CEO when it had 200 people 
you know, raised around $200 million in funding through multiple series rounds. How did your management style and your strategy change over those few years? Because all of this happened over a few years' time. So anything you learned from that experience into how to lead a company as it grew so quickly? Well, you're right. Being in the CEO role changes dramatically at those different stages of the company. But the CEO role is really a reflection of the, the stage of the company and the needs of the company from that role. My management style adapted to the needs of the company and the stage of the company. The question is really like, what were the needs of the company? How did that change from the time that it was you know, 15 people to close to 200? Well, it changed in a lot of ways. So one way that it changed was that we had new functions uh, that we didn't have previous. We had a sales team. We had a, a customer support team. We had marketing. We, had, we didn't have to do these things when we were building core product. Right? So there were more elements that we needed to manage at that stage than we did in the earlier stage. And the other is specialization. So in the beginning, 15 people, everybody's kind of doing everything. And you, know, you don't have much of an org structure everybody's sort of on the same boat. I mean, we're all at that time, this is pre-pandemic, like in the same room. And so there was much more general push toward building the product and doing those initial launches, the FDA approvals, et cetera. When you get to a certain stage, you have one team that's working on the front end, one team that's working on the cloud engineering piece. You have another team that's working on the AI. But then we actually had a team working on prostate cancer AI and a different team working on breast cancer AI, et cetera, et cetera. And so the needs of the company changed with this level of specialization, with these new functions that we didn't have. And so for me as CEO, in the beginning, I was very hands-on involved with all of these different elements because I knew each of these engineers and, and product people that we had over time we had to bring in people who are, knew a lot more than I did about sales or support or marketing or whatever it was. And I had to delegate those areas to them so that they could manage them more effectively than I could. So that removes you a little bit from the day-to-day -day operation. When you get to that stage, I didn't know everybody at the same level that I knew them early on, but you know, the needs of the company really changed. I had to reflect that with my management style. I imagine it's pretty humbling to go from being hands-on, knowing all the details to having to hire subject matter experts in different functional areas and delegate different work and maybe not have that visibility to that detail of what everyone's doing throughout the company. Well, you know, it's funny actually, because it, I was actually more in my comfort zone there because, you know, Siemens, was one of the largest companies in the world. I think they were the ninth largest employer when I was there, something like 400,000 employees. So I knew what it was like to work at a big company. And then at Hartfo, we had about 450 people when I left. And with an engineering and product, it was about you know, 100, 120 or so. So I had already worked and operated in that world. So actually the novel part to me was the 15 people you know, really being so embedded in every aspect with the more generalization, less specialization. So actually, as we grew, I, I was more in my comfort zone than I was in the beginning. 
It seems as if you went from the bigger companies to smaller and smaller companies. But through that, we're able to witness and observe how different companies operate at different sizes. I want to highlight some of the successes from HeartFlow and, and Page. So Page was the first to get FDA breakthrough designation for an AI product in digital pathology and maybe still the only one. HeartFlow was one of the first in general to get FDA approval for an AI product in a diagnostic. So you've taken both companies through this process. What have you learned about getting AI technologies through the FDA and how is it different than traditional medical devices? Well, first I'll say, especially in the Bay Area, I think there's this libertarian uh, anti-government kind of sentiment of the government just kind of weighs you down. And I can say personally, my experience working with the FDA has been phenomenal. You know, they've been really thoughtful, really engaged. They want to get good technologies on the market. And they have a mission of making sure that those technologies are safe and effective. So the question really becomes, you know, how do you prove safe and effective for an AI system? And it comes back to not really AI so much as it is, what does the product do? What are you marketing this to do, right? And if we're saying at HeartFlow that this technology is to non-invasively assess coronary disease, and we have a labeling that says we can detect functionally significant coronary disease at a certain sensitivity and specificity, then what we need to do is prove to the agency, to the FDA, that we can do those things and that the technology works. And then the, the FDA's job is to say, okay, how do you design your study? How do you sample the population effectively? Does it only work on certain CT scanner manufacturers or certain models or certain patient populations? How do we know that when you launch this technology throughout the US population, that it will be safe and effective for everybody? And so that is the, the, the job that you're doing with the FDA to uh, figure out how to validate these technologies and bring them to market. So in both cases of HeartFlow and PAGE, we went through what's called a de novo process, which means that these were class two devices, they were medium risk devices, but there was no predicate on the market today that we could just say, oh, we'll use the same study design to validate their technology or to validate our technology in the same way as some other company. So in both cases, we had to work with the FDA to develop the right protocols, And it was even better with PAGE because the breakthrough designation basically puts you on speed dial with the FDA, where you can work with them in a much more fluid, much more interactive way to determine those protocols, to do the studies, and ultimately to achieve that first approval that we did. It's an incredible accomplishment to be able to be a two companies that have two diagnostic products, both go through the FDA. They also want to get good technology on the market. Like for example, with Page, when that launched, the FDA put out their own press release. Janet Woodcock, who was the FDA commissioner at the time, was tweeting about how exciting this technology was to be on the market. But at the same time, they need to make sure that they're convinced that it's safe and effective for the broad US population. And that's that's a really important job. Yeah, that's great that they, they tweeted that. That's encouraging. So you left Page last year and now you are working on your own stealth venture. What can you tell us about 
this new company or in general, what you're excited about the applications of AI in healthcare? That's right. When I left Page, I started working with Jim Breyer at Breyer Capital, helping Breyer Capital invest in top AI companies in healthcare, and then often working with these companies to improve their technology and to get on the market. And you know, a lot of the issues that we're talking about today, how to, how to handle those and navigate them. But you're right. I did found my own new company that's also, not surprisingly, an AI company in healthcare. I think AI has multiple different opportunities in healthcare. I mean, it's very broad uh, application. The areas that people focus on the most are things that look like automation. I mean, just the term artificial intelligence suggests that you're replacing something a human does, either you know, a doctor or a nurse or whatever. I think I actually worry a lot about message because I think very rarely that's the case or how AI is being developed or being used, but certainly evokes that concept of, of automation. However, there are other uses of AI. I think the what we did at HeartFlow was a really exciting example of that. Right? We weren't automating something that a doctor was doing or a nurse. We were using AI to get these very, very precise measurements of the coronary arteries from the CT and calculating blood flow. It's not there was no human that was doing Navier-Stokes equations in their head and calculating blood flow. The AI was absolutely essential to that product being successful, but it wasn't automating anybody. It was really enabling us to do things that we couldn't do before. I think there are a lot of ways in which AI is being developed and used that's not about automation at all, but really enabling doctors and patients to do things that they couldn't do before. So you're focused more on enabling physicians or doctors or providers to do things that they couldn't do before as opposed to automation. Well, I think automation has its place. Certainly there are elements that can benefit from automation, but I think it's far less than what people think. So I'll give you an example. You know, Suki is a company that is a Briar Capital portfolio company, and they're basically filling out medical records automatically by taking data and information from a, a patient encounter and a patient visit with a doctor to automatically fill in forms and put all the data in the medical record effectively so somebody doesn't have to type it all in, right? So that's an example where automation, I think, can be hugely beneficial and everybody will welcome that. I don't think anybody wants a robot doctor, including AI companies. Very few of them are really working in that direction. Certainly not what we were doing either at HeartFlow or Page. But I do think that AI allows us to extract information to do, you know, provide different controls of work systems, aggregate information more effectively to help make doctors more effective, give them more information and allow them ultimately to provide better care to their patients. Your entire career, you've been in the diagnostic imaging AI space. Is it safe to say that your new stealth venture is within that realm or is it something very different that you haven't done before? Um, So the new stealth venture is a company that is focused on precision medicine, leveraging one of the omics that has, I believe, been underutilized and underpowered. And that technology 
and company will be providing both diagnostic information to doctors and patients, and will be helping us develop new therapies in the future for a wide range of disease. So if anyone wants to learn more, you know, please reach out. I, I'm available on LinkedIn and don't hesitate. We are hiring for some <laughs> roles and we are also building partnerships quietly before we announce the company. So if uh, it's something that one of your listeners is interested in, please don't hesitate to reach out. You know, I'd be happy to have a call and, and talk further. That's great. And I'm excited to see where the company goes in the future and when it's officially launched. I want to end here with one Thanks. last question. If individuals wanted to explore a career in health tech and AI startups or be a, be a leader in, or entrepreneur in this space, what's the best way to break into it? I think it's to join a startup or join a health tech company. The earlier, the better allows you to understand what it's like to be at a startup, what it's like to build this technology, work with people who've done it before. I think starting a healthcare AI company from scratch with no background in the space is even more difficult than starting a normal startup. Hmm. So I wouldn't recommend that as a jumping off point. I would also say, you know, while I've got soapbox here <laughs> that I wouldn't think about, I've never thought about my career as you know, wanting to be a CEO, wanting to be a whatever, you know, I've always looked at it as how do we build something? How do we leverage something in the most effective way to have a transformative impact on healthcare? And if I can serve that mission in one role or another, I'll play that role. But it was never my ambition to you know, or be a founder. It was really about bring this technology to the world where I think that we can have an extraordinary impact on healthcare, which is something that affects all of us, affects society, affects GDP. And there's a lot of work to do. I love that. You know, chasing meaningful innovation in healthcare versus chasing that role or that title. That's great. Well, thank you, Leo. It's been a pleasure chatting to you and learning so much about your career and the applications of AI in healthcare. Again, if you're interested in learning more about Leo's stealth venture, please reach out to him. And again, Leo, thank you for your time. Thank, thank you. you so much, Jacqueline.